This is the seventh lecture in Innovate 103 on algorithmic bias and fairness. We'll begin by reviewing how neural networks work before turning to the topic of facial recognition software. We'll look into the history of facial recognition and the unsettling legacy of scientific racism. We'll then explore how AI is specifically being used in the criminal justice system before getting philosophical and asking, what would it mean for a decision-making algorithm of any kind to be fair and unbiased? Can any statistical inference be unbiased? Should our technology mirror the society we have or the society we want to have? And who is the we who are building this technology and deciding how our society should look? Some challenging questions in here, so I hope you're up to the task. Let's get started. Part 1. Statistics. A human invention. Have you ever graphed two variables and drawn a line of best fit? Or looked at a graph of cases of a disease and realized that you could draw a perfect exponential curve through the points? Do you remember going to the doctor's office as a kid and seeing those fancy charts that show you where you are on some curve based on your height, weight, and age? What is the purpose of this? Well, when we graph the relationship between two or more variables, we don't just want to see the points on the page. We want to understand the relationship between them so that we can make predictions for the future. It's not enough to just know how many cases of a disease there have already been. We want to be able to say with some confidence how many cases there are likely to be tomorrow and in the future. Your doctor doesn't just want to know how tall you are each year. They want to be able to predict if there's some anomaly in your growth pattern and what that might say about your development or health. This is what statisticians and computer programmers mean when they talk about a model, some predictive mathematical function that can describe a phenomenon in the real world and make inferences about its future behavior. Most statistical models are much more complex than just using your height, age, and weight to predict whether you're growing healthily. They can involve dozens, hundreds, or thousands of variables and attempt to explain truly complicated phenomena. We have models for predicting the weather, pandemics, the movement of the stock market, and people's likelihood to be unable to pay their mortgage. Insurance agents have complicated models to predict the likelihood that you'll get into a car accident or die. Climate scientists use models to explain and predict the warming of the atmosphere. And law enforcement agencies have models that can predict whether a person is likely to commit or recommit a crime. These latter models are much, much more difficult to visualize. It's not simply a two-variable graph whose line of best fit you can extrapolate out on paper. 
These are complex, multivariable, mathematically intensive models that our most sophisticated scientists work on full-time. But there's a problem here. All models are wrong. Well, it's not quite that bad. The famous saying is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. This simply means that models like the kinds we use to predict the weather, measure the stock market, and predict the winners of presidential elections can never fully describe the actual goings-on of the world. This is because these models are trying to predict things which are based on the chaotic behavior of multiple body interactions, the vicissitudes of atmospheric physics, or the whims of human psychology, none of which can ever be fully explained by a deterministic model. We have been duped by physics into thinking that once we can describe something mathematically, our descriptions are precise and based on fixed laws. But this is simply not how the world works. The universe does not behave according to statistical and mathematical models. It behaves how it behaves, and we can attempt to predict and explain that behavior mathematically using our latest statistical methods and our best tools of science. But never forget that these models are fundamentally a human creation, trying to describe a messy, unpredictable world, and will therefore always be imperfect. What does any of this have to do with AI? Well, a neural network is just a really, really sophisticated curve fitter. Let me explain with a totally juvenile example. Say I have a bunch of data about an ice cream company. When it's 20 degrees outside, they make $200 in profit. When it's 30 degrees, they make $400. When it's zero degrees, they make $5, etc. You plot all of this information on a graph and draw a curve of best fit between temperature and profit. I then tell you, okay, it was 23 degrees yesterday and we made $250, and it's 25 degrees today and we made $270. You look at your graph and think, hmm, looks like you drew the curve a bit too steep at that point, so you erase it and correct to account for this new data. You keep on refining and tweaking your curve of best fit until eventually you've got it to the place where you're pretty perfectly matching the sales data day to day. This is supervised learning, plain and simple. This process is the closest the neural network of your brain will ever get to imitating the neural network of code. The only difference is that in a algorithmic neural network, instead of the training data consisting of ice cream sales, it consists of hundreds or thousands or millions of pixels or a waveform or a written sentence. And instead of training consisting of you manually adjusting a curve on a page, it consists of the neural network readjusting its weights in order to minimize the error between its input and the desired output. But really, these two processes are no different. 
A neural network is seriously just an error minimization powerhouse that can do lines of best fit in a million dimensions instead of just two. This curve fitting can be used for so many purposes. We can develop a model that takes in labeled images of different types of dog and learns how to distinguish between them. We can develop a model whose input is the location and color of an ad on a website that'll maximize the click-through rate. Just feed in input data consisting of ads, their color, and their location, and then fit a curve to that model, find the maximum, and bam, you've just invented digital marketing. So this is supervised learning, training a model based on labeled data. Labeled data goes in, curve-fitted model comes out. We've already talked a great deal about where that labeled data comes from and how it's almost certainly the most underappreciated part of the machine learning process, certainly relative to the massive amount of human labor involved. Of course, not all tasks require supervised learning. Neural networks can also be trained to classify things into groups or clusters without specifying in advance what those clusters are going to be. This is called unsupervised learning. We could, of course, do this by hand as well. I could take all the grades of all the students in this course and say, I want to split the class into groups of roughly equal AI aptitude. How many groups should I make? How big should the groups be? Which grade values make the most sense for partitioning the class? There's no right answer here, only groups that better satisfy whatever I'm trying to optimize for. Thousands of statisticians have spent their entire lives thinking through this question, how to sort data into clusters and how to classify things when no obvious classification exists. Of course, this example of sorting our class involves only one variable. But maybe using a marketing example again, I want to split the users of my social media platform into three groups to target them with different ads based on their browsing patterns, the number of times they log on, whether they're a paid customer, and maybe dozens of other different metrics. If you're interested in the specific names of these algorithms, you can look up k-means clustering or principal component analysis. I want to really drill this part home. Neural networks are data fitting and optimization superstars, which are often able to detect patterns and find maximizing solutions that no human being could have ever come up with. That's why it often feels like Spotify and Netflix know your interests better than you do. They've got a model that's been inputted every movie and song everyone has ever listened to or watched, along with all of your preferences, and can nearly perfectly predict what you'll enjoy. This is the galaxy brain version of a line of best fit. Of course, as we've discussed, these networks pale in comparison to basic human tasks like seeing a face once and being able to recognize it again at a completely different angle five years later. Nevertheless, definitely don't underestimate 
what a lot of computing power and a lot of data can do. Why am I reminding you of these finer points about neural networks? Well, it's because if we're going to think about how AI can go wrong, we must really understand exactly what's happening under the hood. And things will go wrong because neural networks rely on data from the real world. And the real world is complicated. It's messy. It's filled with biases and prejudices and injustices and complicated historical legacies. Neural networks don't know any of these things. They just know data. And when we give them data that reflects the blind spots of the people who generated it or the problems of society at large, they will reflect those problems right back at us. Nowhere is this idea more transparent or more unsettling than in the domain of facial recognition. Part 2. Modern Phrenology In the 19th century, scientists collected skulls. Skulls of all sizes, shapes, and weights from people of all races and genders from all over the world. They sorted them, they classified them, they studied their every ridge and bump, they filled them with water and measured their volume and buoyancy. Phrenologists believed that the shape of a person's skull could tell you information about their personality and behavior or predict their criminality. Physiognomists believed that facial features could do the same. Anthropometers and craniometers used skulls to demonstrate a hierarchy in races. If a skull could be shown to be similar in proportion to that of a gorilla or chimp, it was thought to belong to a less evolved human. Many of these collections of skulls have in fact been preserved, like for instance the collection of Samuel Morton, which can still be seen at the Museum of the University of Pennsylvania, and I would highly encourage you to see it if you're looking for a truly chilling experience. Physiognomy and anthropometry and the equally pseudoscientific racist ideas that they propped up were used to support laws like the 1924 immigration bill that put strong quotas on immigrants coming into the United States. These scientific, scientific in quotes, ideas also influenced eugenicists who used a misreading of Darwinian theory to argue that only the fittest in society should reproduce, justifying sterilization laws. In fact, most of the ideas that were implemented in Nazi Germany were actually influenced by American eugenicists like Madison Grant. Grant's 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, is filled with physical measurements and characteristics to argue the superiority of the Nordic or Aryan race. Hitler would go on to call this book his Bible. Phrenology was equally used to predict and understand criminal behavior, 
Criminals were photographed, measured, examined, and studied deeply to understand their physiological properties with a more criminal skull shape corresponding to a longer sentence. Francis Galton, a British statistician and traveler who invented the term eugenics, came up with a technique called composite photography, where he would take multiple photos of different criminals and try to merge them together in order to assess what the average criminal looks like. Galton was in touch with a Frenchman named Alphonse Bertillon, who had invented a new technique for taking accurate photographs of a criminal's face from multiple angles. This is the origin of the mugshot. It is now the year 2020, and while many people view the ideas I've described here as unequivocally repugnant, the roots of physiognomy live on. There is still research taking place to this day that attempts to classify people's criminality by the properties of their face, and much of it relies on machine learning. Data labelers around the world are being sent images of facial data, labeling hundreds of spots on them and computing the angles between their nose and lips or chin and jaw, just like Morton and the anthropometers of yore. This face data is being used to automatically tag people in Facebook pictures, unlock your phone with Face ID, and yes, even attempt to categorize people as criminals. A 2016 study published by researchers at Shanghai Jiaotong University and, in fact, McMaster University, studied automated inference on criminality based solely on still face images. These researchers found that criminal and non-criminal faces are noticeably distinct, and they even found a, quote, law of normality for the faces of criminals. The paper even includes a representation of the average criminal face, hearkening back to Galton and the composite photograph. Galton, of course, could never have dreamed of using this level of sophistication in computing and mathematics to generate this data. These researchers used a dataset consisting of 1,856 photos of Chinese individuals' government-issued IDs, with half the people in the dataset having committed some sort of crime, and the rest being law-abiding citizens from a variety of professions. They then used a number of machine learning techniques, like supervised learning, to train a neural network on this labeled data, and they claim that their model is 90% accurate at predicting criminality from test data. Now, there is so much to talk about here. I don't even know where to begin. The technical machine learning issues should be the least of our concerns, but let's start there anyway. It's entirely possible that this classifier algorithm to detect criminality in a face is picking up on patterns totally unrelated to any individual's face. One critic of this paper noted that the non-criminals in the dataset are very frequently wearing collared shirts, and so perhaps the neural network actually trained on that. 
We've seen from adversarial attacks that neural networks aren't really picking up on the same features that we humans do and aren't detecting what we see when we look at objects. But also, people who commit crimes are quite often poor, stressed, or marginalized in society in some way. These things can take an extreme toll on one's health and physiology and can most certainly manifest in the face. So maybe the algorithm is simply detecting these facial features effectively. Surely some of these things might correlate with one's propensity to commit a crime, but the claim that this classification gives us an objective way to predict a person's being a criminal just does not add up. But again, this is hardly the level at which we should be criticizing this research. We should really be examining the assumptions that are behind the study and might lead to this work being conducted in the first place. One hidden assumption is that criminality is an innate category of a person that can simply be predicted from their face. While it is true that there are some biological correlates that relate to the propensity to commit a crime, for instance, simply being a man or having high testosterone levels makes you more likely to enact physical violence, these are merely statistical correlations that are affected by uncountably many societal, cultural, and environmental factors. So yes, biology has some influence on a person's likelihood to commit a crime, but so does the neighborhood they grew up in, their socioeconomic situation, who their parents are, the food they eat, the media they consume, their relationship with the police and other institutions of power, their cultural milieu, and a whole host of other things that are far from innate and most certainly cannot be predicted from a still image of a government-issued ID. And for that matter, being a criminal and being arrested or sentenced to a crime are very, very different things. In the United States, for instance, there is a roughly equal prevalence of illegal drug use among white people and black people, and yet black people are six times more likely to end up in jail for doing those drugs. So how do you even measure the rate of criminality, quote-unquote, in these two different groups? But I want to go a level even deeper and ask, why is this research even being done? Who is benefiting here? Ignoring the assumptions that it's based on, or whether its results are even correct, why are we doing this? Scientific inquiry should be about asking important questions to increase our understanding of the universe, nature, and humankind in order to do good in the world. Even if this particular study was done unimpeachably, with perfect ethics and design, what's the point? Say we can predict criminality from a person's face. Are we going to start scanning people at birth to predict their criminal behavior? Monitor them in schools on that basis? Or should we just use the information that sociologists and criminologists have already given us about how to prevent crime through competent governance, robust social institutions, and strong community support, and nix the facial recognition altogether? 
My overarching point here is that just because it is possible to study something using neural networks doesn't mean we necessarily have to. I hope you see that even if facial recognition technology worked perfectly and was free of all bias, we should be somewhat skeptical of the mere existence of this line of inquiry. Unfortunately, facial recognition does not work perfectly and is very much full of bias, especially in the U.S. and Canada, where the multicultural makeup of our society is not at all reflected in the capabilities of the leading facial recognition software. Many of the key data sets that have been used to train facial recognition systems are made up mostly of white faces. A neural network cannot recognize what it has not been trained on, so it will make egregious mistakes when faced with darker-skinned people. MIT researcher and poet of code Joy Bulamwini demonstrated this in a remarkable project called Gender Shades. The full title is Gender Shades, Intersectional Phenotypic and Demographic Evaluation of Face Datasets and Gender Classifiers. Bolamwini is black, and she showed that a number of the world's leading facial recognition programs could not even identify her face as a face at all, whereas they had no problem with her white colleagues. And the programs that could recognize her made consistent mistakes, such as identifying her as a man or being totally off with her age. We can tentatively ignore for now the issues we've already discussed about how there's no true way to detect a person's gender from their face. She then created a data set of a thousand faces of leaders in governments from around the world, equal numbers of people from African and European countries. She fed these faces into three companies' facial recognition systems, IBM, Microsoft, and Face++, the latter being a Chinese-developed system that has a huge amount of Chinese face data. Microsoft's system had an overall 94% accuracy rate for detecting gender from a face. But nearly all of the inaccuracy was coming from incorrect guesses on pictures of darker-skinned women. In Microsoft's case, it was less than 80% accurate on that group. IBM's system was only 65% accurate. Bear in mind that 50% accurate would mean flipping a coin, so that's just a guess. So 65% accurate is, is pretty dang bad. The darker the skin of the face being shown, the less accurate all of these systems were. And remember, no one at IBM needs to be actively racist for this to happen. The code can be unimpeachable. But as long as the faces that are used to train these datasets are not diverse, and they don't represent a truly global sample of skin colors and tones, these systems are bound to be biased. The partially good news here is that the industry has responded to these criticisms in a serious way by generating some new benchmark datasets that are substantially more diverse. In 2019, IBM released a new dataset of 1 million labeled faces called Diversity in Faces. But again, 
it's hard to say whether this is truly a victory, because I'm going to read from the official paper that announced the launch of this dataset. Here we go. Diversity in Faces provides a dataset of one million annotated human face images for advancing the study of facial diversity. The annotations are generated using 10 well-established facial coding schemes from the scientific literature. The facial coding schemes provide human-interpretable, quantitative measures of facial features. We believed that by making the extracted coding schemes available on a large set of faces, we can accelerate research and development towards creating more fair and more accurate facial recognition systems. Does this not feel a little bit like phrenology and physiognomy all over again? And even ignoring that, this new Diversity in Faces dataset has a number of issues. Many of these pictures were simply scraped from Flickr or other websites without necessarily obtaining the consent of the people in the images. I would label this entire facial recognition business as fractally wrong. From the data labeling, to the image collection, to the algorithms, to their application in criminology and policing, no matter what scale you're looking at this or how you choose to zoom in or zoom out, you're going to find injustice. And this is particularly pernicious when these technologies could end up in the hands of groups who might use them to do more harm than good, like the military, marketers, or the group we turn to now, law enforcement. Part 3. Algorithmic Injustice The use of AI in the legal system has come to be known as predictive justice. There are multiple different kinds of systems at play here. Predictive technology is used to predict who might commit a crime, decide how many police officers should be in a given area, how someone on trial should be sentenced, and whether an inmate should be released based on the supposed risk that they pose to society and their likelihood of reoffending after being let out of prison. While our present-day algorithms are new, the idea of using statistics and predictive models in criminal justice is quite old, as we've already seen. We can think of today's systems as originating back in the 1920s, when two researchers developed what they called an accurate statistical test to generate a score of each prisoner's likelihood to violate their parole, that is, to figure out if they would commit a crime while being let conditionally released from prison. Of course, this statistical test had to be computed by hand, and was based on very limited information in the 1920s. Today, all of the information in the world is at the fingertips of the corrections industry. Some of these models take into account almost all of the information you could ever gather about a person, like their health records, their education, their physiological traits, their internet browsing data, and this same information for everyone they'd ever come into close contact with in order to make predictions about parole violations. An example of this kind of software is called Compass, which is used to help judges decide whether a person should remain in jail 
or be let free during the time in between when they are arrested and when they have their trial. It uses the defendant's age and history with the criminal justice system, along with the specifics of the crime they commit, to make a statistical prediction. The investigative publication ProPublica found that Compass consistently labels black people twice as likely to reoffend as their white counterparts, even holding constant their age and criminal history. The other major problem with Compass is that it cannot explain its decisions. A judge must explain in writing why they've decided to put someone in jail or let them free, and even if that writing is prejudiced, at least we have a reason. With predictive software, we are as of right now unable to peer inside of the neural network and understand precisely why a particular decision was made. This is the issue of interpretability, as we've discussed before. What is the underlying motivation behind technologies like Compass? Much of it stems from the accurate recognition that human beings are biased. Police officers make rash and prejudiced decisions, and so do judges. So if we can outsource some of their decision-making to computers and software, this, presumably, can reduce some of the bias in the system. Now, to be sure... People are still ultimately making these decisions. Judges aren't universally following Compass's recommendations unthinkingly. At the end of the day, there is always a human in the loop. But people often trust an algorithm's judgment more because they believe it to be fully objective. The problem, of course, is that the statistics being inputted into predictive policing systems reflect the biases of the real world. In the United States, this means that predictive systems are being inputted data which shows that black people consistently serve longer sentences and are substantially more likely to get stopped and arrested even if they've done nothing wrong or would not at all result in an arrest for a white person and are in general incarcerated at five times the rate of their white peers. Here in Canada, we disproportionately incarcerate indigenous people, but we also have serious problems with the over-policing of predominantly black neighborhoods. These statistics are objective in the sense that they accurately reflect the reality of the criminal justice system in America and Canada. But they are not necessarily just in the sense that a truly objective and fair arbiter of the law would never call for the circumstances we are in now. So it's very troublesome to say that predictive systems are objective because they're data-driven. Predictive justice technologies are accurate, but the patterns they've learned reflect social systems imbued with systemic racism and complicated historical legacies. Just because something is accurate doesn't necessarily mean it's ethical. The result is that when one of these algorithms is asked to predict who will commit crimes in the future, well, of course it's going to over-predict and therefore over-incarcerate black or indigenous people because that's what it's been trained on. Problematic input data means problematic outputs. This idea is often referred to as Garbage in, garbage out. 
I do feel a slight sense of unease about this aphorism because the data that's coming in is not necessarily best thought of as garbage. This could be the most impeccably gathered, cleanly maintained, beautifully organized data, which perfectly reflects the reality of policing in, say, Los Angeles. But nevertheless, you'd still get so-called garbage out because it's not the data that needs to change, it's reality. And neural networks cannot do that themselves. To echo some of the themes we've discussed a lot in this course, AI is an amplifier, and only humans can solve human problems. Now, this is not to say that there is no role whatsoever for technology in the criminal justice system. AI can be used to make scheduling more efficient and get rid of backlogs that leave people unlawfully detained or awaiting trial for too long. Lawyers and judges often complain that a huge amount of the paperwork that they do could easily be automated at minimal risk to the system. And it's not impossible that someday a computer program could be developed which provides genuine assistance to prosecutors and judges in helping them make fair decisions. It's just very clear that that program will not look like our present-day neural networks. In addition to predictive technologies, facial recognition also plays a role in policing. Police departments use facial recognition to identify people whom they deem at risk of committing a crime, and police departments often have deals with CCTV providers in malls and public spaces. We spoke last week about how the Amazon subsidiary Ring, a smart doorbell company, has contracts with over a thousand police departments to use facial recognition software to identify possible suspects in break-and-entering situations. While the use of facial recognition technology in policing has long been controversial, this topic has increasingly come under fire in recent weeks, and it seems like steps are now being taken in a direction to stop the practice. Just this week, in fact mid-June 2020, in case you're listening to this at a later time, Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM announced that they would stop selling facial recognition technology to the police in the wake of extraordinary protests and demonstrations all over the United States and around the world. This move was a long time coming and took years of pressure from activists and scholars Dozens of organizations had written detailed letters to Amazon, thousands of people had signed petitions, and Amazon employees even organized and wrote internal memos demanding the company sever ties with the police and with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Amazon had in 2018 published papers explaining how its facial recognition system was unbiased and effective, and that the critics simply did not understand what they were saying. But then, just a week ago, IBM publicly declared that it would stop its facial recognition research and sent a letter to the United States Congressional Black Caucus asking for a national dialogue on whether and how facial recognition technologies should be used by law enforcement. 
Amazon soon followed suit, announcing a one-year moratorium, or hiatus, on police usage of its facial recognition platform. It's unclear whether this change will last, or whether this is simply a waiting game on Amazon's part, before they return to this incredibly profitable part of their business. Stepping back for a second, it seems that we've been faced throughout this lecture with a fairly thorny problem. How can we build systems that try to make the world better when these systems reinforce the status quo by design? If a system like Compass were to actually behave in a way that does not reinforce existing inequalities, it would probably have to treat white, black, indigenous, and Hispanic, Latinx people differently in its algorithm to adjust for the legacy of systemic injustice or the overprominence of policing in communities of color, as well as the implicit and explicit biases of justices and other people in the system. But this is not allowed, because according to U.S. law, race is a protected class. So writing an algorithm that treats different racial groups differently is considered discrimination. So we're kind of stuck. If we don't consider race as a factor in our algorithm's design, we simply reinforce the status quo. But if we do consider race, then we're building an algorithm that violates the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection to all under the law. Neither of these situations are optimal, and both are unfair in their own way. But trade-offs like this are happening everywhere in AI, so it's worth pausing and really asking the question, what is fairness? Part 4. Fairness in an Unfair World Let's try to think about the idea of fairness mathematically. Let's imagine a machine learning model that takes in a huge amount of data about a large population of people and tries to predict whether they will succeed in a particular job. It should come as no surprise that there are real algorithms that do this, and many, many companies are working on hiring algorithms as we speak. Let's also stipulate that different people in this system have different quantities of data, some of the applicants might have reams of content that they've posted online, a major social media presence, tons of linked records to other identifiable people, notable financial disclosures, a great deal of health information from their body tracking apps, and much more. Whereas for another candidate, we might just know their age or gender or socioeconomic status. What would it mean for this algorithm to behave fairly? Here is one way to think about it. If two candidates are very similar along many axes, they should have roughly the same outcome. So, for instance, if there is a man and a woman who are equally qualified and differ only in their gender, we would expect that this algorithm, if it's fair, should give them roughly the same score. Of course, this question of what is similar is extremely hairy, if our definition of fairness is that similar people have similar outcomes, we now need a whole new process for deciding what makes two people similar. 
And then how do we make sure that that process is fair? Can we really ever compare two people like this, especially in a world where different groups are treated so differently in the eyes of society? How do you run an algorithm that inputs data about a man's CV for a job and says, well, counterfactually, if you were a woman, we would have treated you this way. Therefore, this current treatment is equal. I personally did not learn that one in my intro stats class. So that's individual fairness, and it's really, really challenging, and I do not envy the statisticians trying to work on these questions. But instead of imagining fairness as being measured by individual similarity, what if instead we thought about groups? Maybe we want to be sure that we hire the same number of men and women into the job. So the prime directive of our algorithm is that no matter the structure of the underlying data, it must find a configuration where there is gender parity or gender equity in its outcomes. Let's try to formalize this a little bit. We can think of four categories for the model's output. The model can say that a person would be a good fit for the job, and it could be accurate. That would be a true positive. It can say that they'd be a good fit for the job and be inaccurate. They're not actually good for the job. That is a false positive. The model could say that they wouldn't be good for the job and be accurate. They've accurately identified someone as being unfit for the position. That is a true negative. Or they could say that they wouldn't be good for the job and be inaccurate. So they're wrong. They would have actually been good for the job. That is a false negative. So we've got four conditions here, true positive, False positive, true negative, false negative, each corresponding to a different possible output of this model when looking at any given person's data. So if we go back to this requirement that I just described, that we want equal numbers of men and women to be declared successful for this job, this simply means that we want the sum of the true positives and the false positives for men and women to be equal. Right? That is the number of people deemed positive, that is, would be good for the job, should be equal for men and women. I know that this is complex and hearing it just in your ears without the visual is tricky, but if you're reading the transcript or able to look this up on Google, I would highly encourage you to do so. Notice that there is no guarantee that this is a fully accurate process. When we just ask for gender parity, there is a possibility that some false positives could sneak in. That is, men or women who were deemed by the algorithm to be suitable for the job but aren't. But that's unimportant in this case because our prime directive is to maximize parity. Okay, so what if instead of going for gender parity or gender equity, we wanted our definition of group fairness to be that we minimize the likelihood in both groups, of false positives. That is, we want our algorithm's central goal to be that no one is told they're going to succeed in this job if they won't. Maybe instead we want to minimize false negatives, that is, make sure that everyone who will succeed is aware of it, even at the expense of letting some non-successful people slip through. 
then maybe we want to balance each of these with demographic parity as well. Each of these measures of group fairness has its own challenges mathematically. And the problem that we face is that it's impossible to do all of them at once. These different methods face some serious trade-offs. If we go back to the predictive algorithms in criminal justice once again, there is a direct tension between unjustly locking up innocent people and ensuring that someone who might reoffend is not let free before a trial. The more strict we become, the harder it is to guarantee that innocent people are not being detained. And if we are writing an algorithm to solve this task, it has to maximize something, but getting the math right is not trivial at all. This is precisely why these algorithms can be so dangerous if these questions are not thought through in advance. So as you can see, there are many different ways we can think about fairness at the individual or group level. At the end of the day, there is no single objective answer here. I will say from personal experience, having sat on a couple of admissions committees, that these questions are really, really hard. Ensuring that you're selecting the highest quality people, while also guaranteeing that a cohort is diverse in their gender, race, interests, ages, backgrounds, and more, is a messy, labor-intensive, cognitively demanding process, and you really do face trade-offs. If I were writing an algorithm to do that task, I know I'd find it extremely challenging to implement into mathematical rules our imprecise human ideas about fairness. One solution is to simply not use an algorithm at all. Let human tasks be human. But if we are going to hand our decision-making abilities to algorithms, which in many cases we probably should and could benefit from, it's crucial that social scientists, technology scholars, and ethically-minded statisticians are involved at every step of the way to keep these questions top of mind. I'd like to conclude this lecture by just giving a couple more examples of bias in AI and discuss how people are taking steps to solve them. Five years ago, when you googled physicists, you would mostly see photos of men at chalkboards. How should we feel about this? It is true that in our world, most physicists are men. They're typically not posing at chalkboards, but they are mostly men. At the same time, there are active efforts to change the status quo. Organizations are working tirelessly to break down the barriers that keep women out of STEM fields. And one of the most important things they advocate for is the positive representation of women in fields like physics. The more women physicists there are, the more women will see physics as a viable career option for them. And a small thing, though Google's search results might be, they reinforce a stereotype about who is and who ought to be a physicist. By the way, if you are interested in learning about some awesome women physicists, please excuse this totally shameless self-promotion, but I once wrote a song about that very topic. You can look up Not Just Mary Curie on YouTube. Okay, back, back to the program.
So what do we do about this bias in Google image results? Is it fair for Google to accurately reflect the data it gets from real-world physics departments? Or is it more fair to optimize for some other principle, like gender equality? There, again, is no objectively correct answer, and reasonable people can certainly disagree. But thanks to the work of scholars like Safia Noble, whose book Algorithms of Oppression talks about a lot of the issues we're discussing right now, Google has changed some of its own search results. So today, when you Google physicist, the result looks much more like a world of gender representation that we are hopefully moving towards, rather than the world of the present or the past. Here is another example. Natural language processing systems store words as vectors. And we can understand how these language systems, quote-unquote, think about the world by seeing how these vectors add together in space. So, for instance, if you take the vector for king and add the vector for female, you get queen. But if you take the vector for doctor and add female, in some systems, you'll get nurse. This system is simply reflecting a pernicious bias that exists in our language, in our minds, and in our cultural imagination. In this case, this particular prejudice is not even reflective of the actual state of medicine. Visit any medical school in this country, and I can guarantee you'll find more women than men training to be doctors. But our natural language processing systems have not yet picked up on that reality. One added layer of complexity here is that most people using machine learning pull from the same few major models. So if Google's system, for instance, encodes this kind of gender bias in language, and every educator, company, nonprofit, and casual machine learning user uses this same system, it'll now be the case that even the most well-meaning or progressive AI coders are perpetuating that prejudice too. Fortunately, the mere fact that we are talking about this, once again, it's a good thing because it means that companies like Google are aware of these biases in their own data and will be taking steps to address it. A final example is that the data fed into many image recognition systems simply does not reflect the cultural diversity of the world. One image recognition system, which can reliably recognize an image of a white wedding dress, which originates from British culture, will consistently fail when identifying traditional wedding attire from other countries. When shown an Indian wedding, for instance, it labeled it as a costume party. In retrospect, it's almost comical to think that the people who built this program thought that they could train it exclusively on one culture, then have it be universally useful. To use an example from earlier in this lecture, it's as though we trained our model to predict ice cream sales in my suburb of Thornhill, Ontario, then transported that model to every major city around the world where dietary patterns, taste preferences, allergies, and customs differ, and expected the ice cream sales to be exactly the same. 
the solution here is simply to have much, much more globally representative data sets, which the major companies and researchers are increasingly aware needs to happen. There is also one counterintuitive way that bias in AI systems can be a very good thing, which is that it can show us where we're failing as a society. One analysis of millions of patients in a hospital showed that black patients needed to display more harsh symptoms in order to be referred to a care management program. That is, doctors either did not believe their black patients or the hospitals largely treating black patients were resource-constrained. While it's one thing to know this anecdotally, it's another thing to have a machine learning algorithm that consistently and demonstrably learns this pattern, leaving us with no possible doubt that there is bias in the system. Remember, neural networks are excellent pattern detectors, so we can actually use this to our advantage to find instances of discrimination and prejudice that we suspect exist, but perhaps don't fully understand statistically in order to tackle them head on. If there's one message I want you to take away from all of this, it's that our present day neural network techniques are an amplifier. They echo back at us our failings and prejudices to great detriment if we're not careful. Neural networks are ruthlessly accurate, but as I hope I've demonstrated, accurate does not necessarily mean fair or just. When thinking about these systems, we need to decide as humans what fairness means and what trade-offs we're willing to accept between accuracy, equity, error minimization, and fairness at the individual or group levels. These are not straightforward questions, which is why it's so important to ensure that the people who are building this technology are aware of these issues and come from a variety of academic and life backgrounds. We began this lecture by noting that all models are wrong, but some are useful. When thinking about the usefulness of a model, I encourage you to ask, useful to whom? For what purpose? To whose benefit? And at whose expense? And amid all this talk of machine learning bias and fairness, we shouldn't forget that neural networks themselves are rarely biased. They're just mathematical functions modeled on the brain. Human beings and the systems we created are biased. AI is simply the mirror that shows us where we must do better.